I've already introduced myself. I'll just say that I, at the, I'm sharing two posts at the moment, one at the University of Roehampton, where I'm co-director of the Palo Ferry Institute and Research in Inequalities, Societies, and Education, very long title, but really just celebrating the work of Palo Ferry and thinking about Palo Ferry's work um, and, and in a critical way and in relation to contemporary context and also kind of wider, broader work around critical theory and, and critical pedagogies. And I'm also now just taking up a post at the University of Newcastle in Australia and I'm going to Australia for my first visit on Wednesday, so very excited about that. Um, and I'm, I'm co-directing um, a, a new center in excellence and equity in higher education which is really about widening participation in higher education, but making connections between kind of the, the local, the national, and the global, and thinking about very much uh, at the heart of the, this seminar series, the relationship between uh, research theory and practice. So, um, so I'm just about to launch that adventure in a couple of days. Um, I'm a, I'm a sociologist of gender and education, and I'm being a little bit greedy today because I'm actually going to talk about two of my projects. One that isn't directly about <coughs> learning and teaching, but I think that some of the, um, the themes that emerge from that research help us to think about um, uh, broader questions about pedagogies in higher education as well as admissions pro practices. And my kind of... Um, take on thinking about pedagogies in higher education is that we need to think about pedagogies in the broadest sense. So not just about our, te our kind of very literal teaching practice or our teaching methods, but about the relationships that we develop uh, between us uh, across different higher educational spaces. And that would include um, the ways in which we engage with candidates before they actually become students in our institutions, as well as um, in, in uh, kind of the, the classroom in, the higher, in, in higher education, and also more informal pedagogical spaces that students form um, outside of the formal classroom space as well. So <clears throat> the overview for my um, presentation this morning is to think about uh, theoretical and methodological perspectives of social justice. And I deliberately use social justice because I want to foreground uh, this aspect of widening participation in my work and to think about what we mean around social justice issues and also the slippages around the language that we use uh, around widening participation and the political implications of that for what we do, um, what kinds of research we do, for example, but also what kinds of practices we take up. Um, I'm going to also use these two research projects, as I've said, to illustrate um, the ways that uh, this helps to think about theoretical and methodological issues around social justice in higher education and the significance of methodology and the ways it shapes our knowledge and understanding of inequalities in higher education. And one of the, the um, points that I just want to foreground, and I think we all know this, but I think it's an important point to foreground, is the significant ways that different kinds of methodologies will um, shape, profoundly shape, the, the kinds of research that we do, the kinds of methods that we take up, the kinds of ways that we analyze the data, the ways in which we formulate our questions and what we think the problem is, um, the ways in which we treat ethical issues in the research, and um, very importantly, the ways in which knowledge is then shaped um, and constructed and also uh, presented and represented, um, both in terms of the way that the, the data is represented, but also the broader kind of knowledge claims that are made. And I think this is really important in relation to um, the, the field of equity in higher education, because we're not only talking about questions, um, very significant questions about who has the right to higher education, but also questions about what kinds of knowledge is privileged, what kinds of knowledge is marginalized, who has the right to make certain knowledge claims, who can be a knower, and what kinds of ways that we construct truth in those kinds of um, contexts. And of course, you know, in policy at the moment, there's a very strong emphasis on evidence, and that's, that's a wonderful move, and that's something that we need. But we also need to critique 
the, the ways in which we think about what counts as evidence and how that also might constrain the kinds of knowledge that we um, produce. Because what I'm going to argue is that when we think about inequalities in higher education, they're not always about concrete forms of discrimination or inequality, things that are easily observable or measurable, but they're also about the much more subtle experiences, lived experiences of social injustices that seep into our ways of understanding who we are, what we can be, what we can do, um, and, and are, are kind of um, felt at the emotional level quite often and are much more difficult to capture um, through evidence. So we need to think about methodologies that are both about collecting kind of hard evidence around statistics, but also methodologies that are able to capture those more nuanced um, uh, experiences of inequalities at the lived, at the emotional, at the um, kind of level of identity. Um, and of course, social justice itself is a contested concept. Um, it could be thought about in terms of overcoming or struggling against unequal power relations, against oppressive forces, against domination, against um, the perpetuation of particular forms of inequalities, etc. But each of those, each of those points have particular kind of theoretical um, perspectives behind those that need to be unpacked because we make assumptions when we think about what we mean about social justice. And often, as we do with widening participation, we just leave these terms to speak for themselves without unpacking them and thinking about those. And I think that our research is a space in which we can um, open up dialogue and thinking about what we mean. Because when we do, it helps us to refine and develop uh, uh, practices that might uh, be, uh, I don't want to use the word effective, but might be more um, useful in um, challenging uh, these persistent, long-standing historical inequalities that we're concerned with around widening participation. And so one of the concepts that I think um, is important, as many other critical scholars do, is, is the concept of power. And how we think about power, of course, is also contested. But I think that power needs to be at the center of our work. Because as I said earlier, it's about questions about who has the right to higher education, which is a question of power, and how we construct knowledge and make knowledge claims, which is, again, a question of power. Um, so my question, I guess, is how might we, through our research, develop understanding about the complexity of inequalities at all of, of its multiple dimensions and levels? So I just wanted to say something briefly about this idea of the autobiography of the question. Um, can everybody hear me fine, by the way? Okay, good. Um, because this has been something that has really, really shaped my thinking about research and how we approach research. And I have to reference Jane Miller, who was one of my master's tutors um, quite a long time ago. But she's, you know, this idea of the autobiography, autobiography of the question really, really struck me as very important. And of course, it comes out of um, the work around feminist methodologies, critical methodologies, etc. Um, but I just wanted to say a little bit about my own autobiography in coming into this field, because the reason that I became interested in questions around access to and participation in higher education was because I returned to study myself as a non-traditional student um, uh, taking an, uh, an access to higher education course. And I had no plans, no plans to become an academic, no plans beyond actually doing the access course. It was the experience of doing that and meeting other mature, non-traditional students that really made me feel very passionately about this topic. And I was really struck by the amazing tenacity um, and determination of a, of a lot of the um, mature students that I met along the way. And I became really, really passionate about doing research on this area. But I was quite idealistic about it. I saw 
um, you know, the, the, the idea of women's access to higher education in quite idealistic ways. I saw it as empowering, as just a good thing, simply um, put. When I came to do a PhD, and I started to gather data around um, working class women's experiences of accessing higher education, and I really was able to listen to that data, I began to see the kind of complexity of their experience, that it wasn't simply a positive thing, that actually this was a real struggle around um, trying to negotiate different parts of their lives. Change and transformation was not always an easy thing. It was often quite painful. Learning itself was often quite painful for the women. It wasn't necessarily an empowering, straightforward thing in those ways. So the point that I'm making is that I needed then to um, revisit my methodology. I need, needed to revisit my theoretical framework in order to account for those complexities. And so the kinds of questions we ask, the kinds of methods we bring, the kinds of frameworks we bring um, will be able to um, speak to the data and speak to the field in particular ways. Some things will be made visible, some things won't be. And I'm sure that there were lots of things in my research which were not made visible. But through the kind of post-structural, qualitative, ethnographic framework that I adopted, I was able to tease out the complexities of these women's lives. And it changed my thinking um, about, about questions of access to higher education. So one of the things, this is um, a book that I, I recently published, The Right to Higher Education Beyond Widening Participation. And in that book, I argue that we need to draw on critical theories and concepts in order to be able to really begin to grapple with the complexities of inequality at play in higher education in the ways that I just said, that you know they're about um, both kind of um, much more easily observable inequalities, such as the barriers that people face around lack of resources or lack of finances, but they're also about the more kind of subtle processes of um, <coughs> feelings of exclusion, for example, or not belonging or not fitting in. Um, and so the ways in which we theorize key concepts is importantly has huge implications for, for those groups who are being targeted, who are at the gaze of our research. Um, so for example, the ways in which we conceptualize inclusion, which is inclusion seems to be a dominant theme in widening participation policy and practice. We never really talk about what we mean about inclusion, aside from in the research literature. Um, and the ways in which we think about inclusion has huge implications for the interventions that we develop, for the ways in which we work with um, young people or students who are being targeted by widening participation, but also by, in the ways in which we construct those students and, and the ways in which, indeed, um, they construct themselves. And I really like this quote from Louise Archer. I've actually used it over and over again because I think it completely um, captures um, my, my kind of concerns about the ways in which we often use inclusion. And she says that the ways in which we uh, talk about inclusion in educational policy um, aims to include those who are excluded into the dominant framework state of being rather than challenging existing inequalities within the mainstream system or encouraging alternative ways of being. And I think that this is an incredibly important point because often we, when we talk about widening participation, we imagine that we're, we're, we, the work is outside the university. It's about getting people prepared to fit into higher education as it exists and not thinking necessarily about the institutional structures and cultures and practices within higher education that might be complicit as well um, in the perpetuation and reproduction of inequalities within that higher education space. And I think that that's just as important. I'm not saying it's more important, but I'm saying both are very important. We need to look outside and inside of higher education. And we need to challenge the view that it's only about um, getting those who are excluded to fit into the dominant framework. So critical um, perspectives uh, theorize inclusion in relation to concepts of power. 
So, for example, thinking about the ways that inclusion might regulate those being seen as outside the boundaries of what counts as being included, regulate in the sense of um, ways that you need to be, ways that you need to show, for example, your motivation, or ways that you need to show, for example, your aspiration or your potential. And so the narrow um, uh, perspectives that might um, shape the ways we think about potential or motivation or aspiration are always regulating who can be seen as having motivation, aspiration, or potential, for example. And this is tied in with, um, with what I draw on around misrecognition, um, drawing on largely on Nancy Fraser's work, that um, one of the problems with the ways in which we conceptualize inclusion is that it tends then to misrecognize those who are seen as disadvantaged, excluded, um, uh, um, etc. And uh, Jenny Williams, again, this is a very old quote that I use all the time, but the reason that I continue to use it is I think that it just hits it right on the nail. It's, it's just, it's still so, um, so spot on. She talks about polarizing discourses, and she argues that inclusion always implies exclusion. Being included implies the opposite, being excluded. And of course, this has implications for the ways in which our identities are formed, um, the ways in which um, uh, a young person might be positioned, for example, by others, and also by institutional categorizations that um, frame those constructions. The other important thing I think we need to think about around um, engaging with questions in the field about evidence is the ways that research and evaluation might draw on statistics to measure patterns of educational attainment of different social groups, which of course gives us very important data and information that we require to monitor um, what's going on, to understand the patterns of inequality um, and how those might be changing as we um, make interventions and we invest financial resources. However, as important as those might be, I think the, um, we need to pay attention to post-structural critiques of that that help to problematize some of the assumptions that are embedded in social science categorizations. Um, the ways in which particular categorizations of difference might be constructed and reconstructed in ways that divide and classify groups of people. And this helps to mark out these kind of um, polarizing discourses of, of those who are advantaged or disadvantaged, included or excluded, etc. Um, and so a post-structural scholar might ask the question, what are the implications of such technologies of classifications? And in what ways do such classifications tend to homogenize groups of people? So if we think about um, constructions of social groups through social science research and evaluation of, for example, black and minority ethnic, working class, um, disabled, mature, part-time, etc., we need these classifications. I'm not arguing that we don't need them. We do need them because we need to redistribute resources. We need to think about material inequalities. Um, and we need devices um, that will help us to target those resources. Um, we need them to help us uncover patterns of inequality. And we need a language in which to speak about structural inequalities, particularly now where it feels increasingly that the idea of structural inequalities are being denied a lot in, in public discourse, in popular discourse, in, in the media, etc. So we do need those categorizations. But I'm just inviting us for a moment to, to engage with the problematic nature of those and to think very carefully about how our methodologies might help us to think through those problematic um, aspects of those categorizations. Um, so, you know, they help to uh, think about questions of social justice, but they also constrain our thinking. Um, and, you know, Jacqueline and I actually had a seminar at the last conference some of you might have been at, where we had a wonderful discussion about what are the different kinds of 
um, target groups that have been constructed over the years around widening participation, and who gets kind of lost in the, in, in the, in the um, foregrounding of particular targeting groups. Um, and of course, these classifications are enmeshed in power. They reconstruct power relations around um, who is seen as privileged, who is seen as disadvantaged, etc. Um, they, they help us to reframe um, uh, constructions of difference, and they often, importantly, ignore the ways that differences intersect. So we often think about these categorizations separately, and that's problematic in itself. So for example, when we think about gender, we tend to pose it as kind of um, an opposition between the sexes, rather than thinking about the complex ways that gender intersects with ethnicity, race, class, disability, age, etc. Um, and that, that more complex picture really helps us understand inequalities much better than the, the, cruder, um, the cruder kind of opposition does. So we need to think about social justice that helps us to think both, I think I've already said this, but I'll just say it again because I think it's an important point, um, that helps us address both material and structural inequality, and this helps, to, um, uh, helps us to formulate policies and practices that think about equity and equality and theories of, um, and practices of redistribution, but we also need to think about um, cultural misrecognition, drawing on the work of Nancy Fraser, which calls for policies and practices that help foreground differences, historical differences, and also helps us to see that um, our identities are not just one thing, we don't just belong to one group, but they're fragmented and in process. In the ways that I talked about the women that I researched um, years ago in my PhD research, they were not just working class women. They were operating around a complex field as they moved through different social spaces as mothers, as um, wives, as students, um, and tried to reconcile the expectations, the social ex and cultural expectations of their positions around those different social spaces. Misrecognition, of course, is very difficult to capture because it works at the everyday taken, at level of taken-for-granted practices. Um, it takes place within and across different institutional contexts, um, so different universities, for example, but also across different um, disciplinary fields. So, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about my work on art and design, uh, the kinds of ways that misrecognition might operate in art and design around how potential is constructed within art and design might be different from, for example, medical education. Um, but what's important about this notion of misrecognition is it helps shed light on the ways that gaining access to higher education depends on demonstrating particular attributes and dispositions. And very often, although we talk about transparency, very often those attributes and dispositions and ways of demonstrating those are embedded in, in an esoteric framework which requires that the student or the candidate is able to decode legitimated forms of disciplinary practice, often before they've even started their higher education courses. And that is a complicated thing to do. Um, the other important things about, thing about misrecognition and recognition is that it helps to um, illuminate the ways in which we're all socially situated and that we make sense of ourselves through the different discourses, power relations, and practices that name and make us. So for example, when we're continually identified as lacking potential in school, um, then that's going to profoundly shape our self-understanding, our feeling of worthiness, and our sense of aspiration. Um, and to be recognized as having potential rests on the uh, person's ability to first decode the practices that will allow them to be recognized as having potential within appropriate, legitimate, and authentic kinds of frames. Um, and so for those from underrepresented backgrounds, it might take them time 
to develop an understanding of the ways that potential is being constructed and recognized within a particular disciplinary field. It's not that they lack potential, it's that they haven't necessarily had the time to develop the understanding in order to be recognized as having potential. And I think that it's going to be illuminated by some research that I'm going to share with you in just a moment. These, these points will be illuminated. I also think the idea of embodiment is really important in capturing those more subtle forms of misrecognition. And this is just something from my book where I've written, Embodied Identity helps to think through the ways different bodies take up and use the different higher education spaces available, and the ways that higher education spaces and practices are constructed and reshaped in relation to the different bodies that move through and are positioned within them. So, you know, for example, if we're thinking about pedagogies in higher education and traditional forms of pedagogies, the ways in which identity is being constructed uh, within the lecture theater is, um, is seeped in, power, in traditional power relations, and I would argue seeped in traditional gender and class power relations, uh, with the, the knower at the front of the room and the students passively in rows um, taking in the knowledge of the <coughs> professor. Um, I also want to draw on Bourdieu's notion of symbolic violence, which helps to think about the impact of marginalization um, on, um, on a sense of self. Um, and forms of misrecognition present unequal access to, in, in Lynn Raphael Reed's words, Unequal access to cultural capital is something that is natural when it is, in fact, a social construction underpinned by differential access to economic capital. So in other words, um, to be seen as not having potential um, is often seen as a, as a natural thing. Oh, she lacks, you know, she lacks uh, creativity, for example, uh, to be able to um, do well on this particular course or she lacks the ability to write well to be able to do her dissertation on this course. Um, that's often seen as a natural thing than as something that is nurtured and developed through access to um, particular forms of cultural capital. <coughs> Excuse me. So I'm now going to draw on my first study, which is Art for a Few. Um, and um, this was conducted with Jackie McManus. And... Um, I'm just going to share a very brief little bit of, of it with you to try to illuminate some of the theoretical points I've just made. But I just want to say something about the methodology, because after all, that's the, that's the kind of center of our, um, of our seminar series. So we wanted not to look at necessarily the patterns of um, admissions, although we have statistics at the back of the report. And by the way, this art for a few is is actually available online. So if you're interested in the report, you can download it. Um, so we have the statistics around participation in art and design courses in England. But what we were interested in was understanding the kind of everyday practices of admissions and selection of candidates for art and design. So what we did in order to get at that kind of detail of everyday taken for granted practices around selection of candidates is we had the amazing opportunity actually to observe real live selection interviews with candidates. We were actually amazed that we got access to those but we did across five um, universities in England and the universities are at the bottom of the slide. I won't read those out um, but they're there for your information. And we also conducted in-depth interviews with admissions tutors to try to understand um, what they did, what was their practice around selection, and also how they understood potential um, and, and um, you know, how they kind of made judgments about who to select uh, for their courses. And these are the interview questions that were pretty regular across the five institutions. They give you a sense, you know, that um, the, interview, the, the admissions tutors were very aware that they needed to be fair, so they asked these questions at every interview, the same kinds of questions to every candidate. But if you look at the questions, the questions are loaded 
with value judgments uh, and subjectivity around, you know, who's experience, what kinds of experiences are seen to indicate potential and ability. So things like, you know, what is your favorite film? What is your favorite advert? What books do you read? What is your favorite shop? That was an interesting one, um, and it was quite interesting to watch the dynamics in the interview around that question. Um, so I'm just going to give the case study very briefly of Nina, because I, I realize I'm running short on time already, and I haven't even started with the second project yet. So Nina was one of the very, very few um, young black working class women who uh, was selected for an interview. She was applying for a fashion BA, and like all the other candidates, she was asked about the influences on her work. She says hip-hop influenced her work. Um, and immediately after, the body language of the uh, admissions tutors visibly changed. They sort of disconnected with Nina, sat back in their chairs. She said that she was interested in, in designing sports tops. As soon as she left the room, which her interview was actually cut short, um, the interviewers decided to reject her. And they had to then we observe their discussion about how they would record this on their form that they had to fill out. I don't know if you can see that, actually. It's a shame. It's, it's, um, it's not easy to read. But basically, interviewer one says, why should we say we're rejecting her? Interviewer two, well, she's all hip-hop and sports tops. Interviewer one, we'll say that her portfolio was weak. However, we also had observed the evaluation of her portfolio before the interview, and it had not been deemed as weak at all. Um, they also talked about her clothes not being uh, seen as very fashionable, but to us, her, her clothes was exactly like the, the young uh, white women that were interviewed uh, previously to Nina. They also said that she lacked confidence and were dissatisfied with her intentions to live at home because they said it signified her, her um, immaturity. Immediately after Nina, a middle-class white male candidate was interviewed. He was expensively addressed. He cited all the kind of famous contemporary artists. And he confirmed that he would definitely be leaving home because it's all part of the university experience. And he was offered a place in spite of having considerably poorer qualifications than Nina, including having failed her, uh, sorry, his GCSE art. So what we argue is that Nina was not recognized um, as a legitimate subject of art and design because she cited a form of fashion that was seen as invalid in this particular context. She also embodied, <clears throat> embodied black racialized ways of being, which were then read off as um, signs of immaturity and lack of fashion flair. And you know, finally, her intentions uh, not to leave home were uh, kind of reinforced this idea that she was an inappropriate candidate. While the male middle class white English candidate knew how to cite the discourses that would allow him recognition, um, and in this way, what we argue is that the admissions tutor's judgments were shaped by implicit, institutionalized, disciplinary, racialized, and gendered, I'd add, perspectives of what counts as legitimate forms of experience and knowledge. So it's, it's not that they were intentionally being discriminatory. It was about the ways in which they viewed potential within their community of practice played out in the judgments they made about a young person like Nina. Um, so it's, it's very implicit, and it, it actually requires that we take a different view of our practice, a much more critically reflexive view of our practice, in order to tease out the ways that these subjective judgments form our, um, our uh, perspectives of certain candidates. Um, okay, I'm going to skip ahead because I'm aware of, of the time. So this second project that I'm going to talk about is Formations of Gender in Higher Education Pedagogies. This is the one that's really about pedagogies in higher education. Um, and this is the team. I just wanted to make sure that I had the team's names. Um, it was really much more embedded in this idea of praxis, of bringing together um, research theory and practice, and having a participatory methodology, methodological framework in which the participants were provided the space to develop critical 
um, orientations to their practice and their experience so that they were able to think about the ways in which their pedagogical practices related to questions of inequality and their experiences of inequality. So the um, project explored the relationship between pedagogies and identity formations. Um, again, we wanted a methodology that enabled us to pay close attention to um, pedagogical practice and experience and to also pay closer attention within the context of this wider kind of public uh, popular discourse about the feminization of higher education and the idea that um, uh, men were now the disadvantaged sex. We wanted to look much more closely at the ways masculinities and femininities were formed within higher education uh, pedagogical spaces. Um, Okay, I've already kind of said about, uh, about pedagogy, so I'll skip through that. Um, and one of the things that we wanted the research to do that I think is different from mainstream research is that we really wanted the research to provide a space that doesn't usually exist um, for teachers and students to have uh, critical discussions about their pedagogies. And that was something that the teachers and students responded very, very well to. They felt that in the usual day-to-day -day life of the university, there were very few spaces to think critically about their pedagogies and also um, to develop their pedagogies in relation to the challenge that diversity um, poses for teaching and learning in higher education. And, you know, it was much more kind of technical stuff that was being addressed, like um, program committees, etc., but not necessarily the space to actually think very carefully about what we're doing and why we're doing those things and how that relates to um, inequalities um, in higher education. Um, so we had um, a range of different uh, methods. Some were very kind of mainstream methods like interviews and observations, but we also had things like workshops and forums, uh, a national seminar that was led by the students. The students made film clips. They kept written reflections. We had informal discussions, and we also had a series of workshops with um, a range of different higher education institutions, students and staff, uh, to think about the um, things that were coming out of the data. Okay, so um, I just want to now share some of the data with you very briefly. I might have to skip through some of this. But um, this was kind of a typical um, quote from the students. And, uh, hey, can I just say, don't skip. We, we all want to hear it. We can always cut into lunch a little bit. You sure? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Is that all right? That's second yeah. speaker. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I always do this wrong. I always think that I don't have enough material. I always have too much material. Okay, bear with me then. So, you know, this, the, the, the data really revealed the complex ways that students who are associated with diversity are often positioned in problematic ways, but really subtly. And um, the characterizations that um, are attached to their bodies include a range of deficit disorders, such as lack of confidence, Lack of confidence came out as a key theme. Um, and confidence seemed to be used as a signifier of the legitimate st uh, student, but framed in a neutral, decontextualized, and disembodied ways, way that students from disadvantaged backgrounds were just seen to lack. So the subtle operations of power that recast the student as lacking in confidence become hidden. And at the same time, the individual um, becomes the focus of the need for remedial forms of support. And this is attached to anxieties about lowering of standards and also the so-called feminization of higher education, but is also detached from the emotional and, and embodied processes of exclusion and marginalization. Um, so, for example, the complex processes of decoding the expectations surrounding acceptable forms of pedagogical participation are often made invisible. So rather, the student who's associated with disadvantage, like this student, often reproduces the narrative of lack of self-confidence 
and is then repositioned as the weak, needy, passive, and feminized student at the center of derog often derogatory discourses of widening participation. Um, and this is connected to the emotional work of internalizing processes of misrecognition and othering. So what we suggest is the student is kind of internalizing that process, and it becomes an embodied uh, experience of nausea and, and intense anxiety. And thinking back to Bourdieu's concept of symbolic violence helps to kind of uncover the subtle forms of exclusion at play here, the ways that feelings of being an outsider or even thick, as many students uh, describe themselves, are made to appear natural through the legitimization of particular forms of embodied habitus. And as um, Lynn Raphael Reed said, shame exists with reference to how we anticipate other, others may see and reject us, but as experienced as internalized disappointment with self, it exists with reference to how we judge our own shortcomings, feelings of failure or inadequacy. So it becomes an individualized thing rather than a social, um, a, a social uh, pattern of inequality. Um, and the discourse of lack of confidence, which is seen to be resolved through the delivery of study skills and other kinds of remedial provision, detaches then the experiences of symbolic violence and marginalization. And this manipulates anxieties about higher education becoming um, so-called too soft. And this idea of it becoming too soft was again a dominant theme that kept re-emerging. So here's two examples out of many of the teachers talking in this kind of way about the feminization of teaching and learning. Um, and this was often articulated in terms of the notion of spoon feeding, which was seen as evidence of the dumbing down and um, feminization of teaching and learning. Um, and there was a lot of anxiety about this idea of performing a maternal nurturing role that's deemed as inappropriate in higher education but also tends to re-legitimize, thinking back to Jenny Williams' idea of polarizing discourses, it kind of re-legitimizes the notion of the so-called independent learner. And independence, of course, has long-standing gender historical connotations, the feminine body constructed as weak, dependent, and passive, and the assumption that pedagogy has become feminized operates to reclaim, we argue, patriarchal and paternalistic uh, forms of authority, knowledge, and practice connected to masculinized class and race notions of autonomy, rationality, competition, and increasingly of excellence, as Jacqueline and I have uncovered in our more recent research. And this actually has implications not just for female students, but also for many of the male students who were positioned and constructed around their other kinds of race and class identities. So it's not, I'm not saying that this is about uh, female versus male students. It's about the implications for all students that these kinds of assumptions um, reinforce. And um, teaching that's deemed to be feminized and soft is also seen, seems to be connected to the anxieties around encouraging a form of passivity in students. But of course, pedagogical spaces are complex and ridden with contradictions, and both lectures and students need to decode and negotiate um, very complicated processes of staking out a claim as a legitimate participant of higher education. Within that, some forms of emotion are actually elevated, which is interesting. For example, those emotions that might be seen as useful to the development of employability, in Goldman's words, as tools that can be used by subjects in the project of life and career enhancement. So the display of caring is a key example of the way some forms of emotion are elevated, but only within the constraints of neoliberal discourses. And this requires the continual working on the self and control over emotions through what might be recognized as appropriate caring practices. So good teachers should teach in ways that show that they care about their subject and about their students, but not too much, and students should learn in ways that show that they care about their learning. And I think that this is a, a really good example of the ways in which caring was understood by some of the students. 
Um, so this student makes the point that gender doesn't matter at all, but the extent to which a person cares about their education does matter. And I think this point resonates strongly with debates about who has the right to higher education in relation to derogatory discourses of so-called undeserving students from backgrounds that are associated with widening participation, but also with the discourse about dumbing down and lowering of standards. And such themes of caring and having passion for learning or not operate as signifiers of difference and of not belonging and marking bodies out of place. Beverly Skaggs, uh, sorry, Beverly Skaggs points out that the problem in contemporary social context is not of distance, but of proximity. And as higher education is becoming increasingly characterized by diversity, the anxiety about the closeness of the other to those deemed to be legitimate subjects of higher education is expressed through narratives about the contamination of pedagogical spaces by those other students who do not know how to be proper university students or act properly in higher education. And the students also kind of reinforce these discourses. And this is an example. It's a very long quote. I'm sorry about that. I've tried to highlight some of the key points. But um, this student is, is kind of relocating himself amongst those who know how to aim higher and also who know how to demonstrate a passion for learning. And I think his, his account is explicitly classed. He talks about coming from a school where um, the other young people knew how to aim higher. Um, and so the marking out of difference is kind of central to identity formation and processes of becoming a student in what is a highly differentiated um, uh, higher education landscape. Care and passion for learning and for teaching are then drawn on to create the emotional surfaces and boundaries around inclusion and recognition and the marking out of otherness and difference. However, showing the right kinds of care and passion is always a delicate balancing act of not showing too much emotion and also distancing oneself from feminized forms of, of caring and passion. Okay. I think I will kind of skip through because I want to make sure that we have. I think this is important, though, because one, you know, I think all of the lectures in the um, study showed a very strong commitment to um, diversity and inclusion. And they really had the will and the desire to develop their pedagogies. But they were overwhelmed with workload. And they didn't know where the spaces were to be able to address the challenges that they faced. And I think that this um, quote from one of the lectures really, really captures this. Um, so she says, it's impossible to educate in the sense that we don't have time to sit down and navel gaze about how we can engage those people better in order to do this, that, and the other. Or do we just look right back at our admissions criteria and say, okay, we only choose the ones who are like us. So a key problem, I think, is the, the lack of resources and the lack of critical spaces, both material and conceptual, available to support the development of pedagogies that embrace and engage difference at both the level of identity and at the level of knowledge formation. Um, so in order to develop inclusive teaching, we need to develop close and critical attention to m multiple levels. As I said at the beginning, we need to think about the emotional, the cultural, the subjective, and the symbolic dimensions of pedagogic experience and of meaning-making, as well as questions of material redistribution and questions about barriers. So some reflections from um, the uh, GAP project are that um, intersections of gender with other identities inflame problematic anxi anxieties about lowering of standards. Um, Gender is always embodied, and only certain bodies can be positioned as legitimate, valuable, or authoritative in relation to hegemonic discourses. I mean, of course, there's always the space to um, subvert those um, hegemonies, but I think it becomes much more difficult for some bodies to occupy those spaces than others. Um, and this poses a challenge for the inclusion, particularly of men from other kinds of social backgrounds wasn't able to show the richness of the data, but certainly what came out was the ways in which 
racialized masculinities um, are are being constructed um, as the kind of um, uh, threatening other in the in the classroom space. And we've done some work, particularly Jill Crozier on the project has done some work around that, um, with often quite derisive constructions of working class and black masculinities coming through the data, um, both in terms of the lectures construction of those students, but also other students' construction of those students. So higher education pedagogies require reformation to address these complex issues, but in ways, I would argue, that reject a problematic claim that masculinity is in crisis, because what that does is it just kind of uh, sets up this unhelpful battle of the sexes debates, rather than looking at complex intersections between gender, race, and class, and how that play out in the construction of different groups of students, both in the minds of students themselves and in lectures, as I've already said. We also developed out of the project, and, and this is another thing about methodology, about what you can do with your kind of research, not just in the ways that I said about providing the spaces through the research, but one of our concerns was how can we sustain those spaces when the research project is over, when the funding runs out. So in our effort to do that, we've actually developed this resource pack. You can, you can barely see it on there. Um, I've got one, one copy here which people can have a look at, and it is available free online. But the idea was really to provide a, a, a pack that would um, provide some of the critical resources that we said are missing often from the higher education spaces, but also to provide some interactive um, spaces for lecturers to think about those in relation to their own practice. So it was very much underpinned by the idea of praxis. Um, but, I mean, this is a question, you know, how do we sustain the momentum and the energy behind critical research beyond the research project? Um, so the ways we theorize particular concepts, such as inclusion, potential, and confidence, significantly shapes knowledge about inequality, so we need to think carefully about our theoretical frameworks. The methodologies that frame our research profoundly shape meaning-making through the research process which will allow us to um, get to particular things or not. So we might be able to see the macro picture of patterns of inequality, but not understand what lies beneath that in the micro level of everyday experience. And we need both, is what I'm arguing. And finally, we need to draw on critical reflexivity in order to get beneath the taken for granted assumptions and practices that often unwittingly perpetuate deeply entrenched inequalities. I think. Uh, most of us have good intentions, we have a strong will, but we are embedded ourselves in complex power relations. So in order to understand our own complicity and our own um, positioning within those, we need the kind of tools of critical reflexivity to unpick those and think about how they shape um, the ways in which we do things and the ways in which we understand ourselves as professionals, as practitioners, or as students. So finally, thank you very much. <laughs>